नमस्ते एवरीवन वेलकम टू द चारवक पॉडकास्ट दिस इज योर होस्ट कुशल मेहरा ऑल राइट सो टुडे वी आर बी टॉकिंग अबाउट दिस इज गोइंग टू बी लाइक अ हिस्टोरिकल पर्सपेक्टिव ऑन द एंटायर इज़राइल पैलेस्टाइन इश्यू सो दिस इज हाउ दिस पॉडकास्ट वाज डिजाइन एज ऑलवेज अभिजीत रैंडमली मैसेजेस मी ही इज लाइक we are doing this podcast and i say yes and then abhijit messages me again uh you're telling daniel to join him i'm like okay and then i reach out to daniel he's like okay i'm coming and here we are so abhijit daniel welcome welcome thanks for having Hello. us so do we officially call this podcast you know russell peters coined a interesting name he said if a hindu and a jew have a baby they will be called hindu so is this the hindu podcast yes it is now so uh, okay abhijit now now i'm going to hand it over to you as i always do so you tell me how you want to go about it how do we look at the entire historical thing and then daniel you can come in between whatever you guys want to do my job is just to sit back relax and listen to you and uh, abhijit now it's all yours look i think it it's easier to take it up in terms of legal questions okay uh, first for example is the right to return now you tell me something every time partition has happened in the last and in the 20th century uh, the uh, partitions and population exchanges are an accepted fact of international law be it india pakistan be it cyprus uh, be it turkey and greece etc etc uh, the question is when a palestinian says right of return why would you want to return to a country that you believe is genociding you number 1 number 2 why would the palestinian state you know today countries aren't defined by land they're defined by their people the people are the biggest asset of a country why would you want to export that to another country i really don't know right so this is perspective number 1 right to return second they'll can say, i just add quickly here yeah. the the arab leadership was very very clear since day 1 about right to return that after they couldn't beat israel in wars they wanted to destroy israel through dem- demography like this sounds like racist blah 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 the immigrants are coming well but i'm saying the arabs explicitly have stated that the the, the plan of right to return is to destroy israel um through uh you know demography mm. and uh they are blatant about it by the way uh when you go sit down in ramallah and have a coffee with them at movin pick or whatever uh they'll be like not to worry uh in about uh, 10 years we will be the majority and then we'll demand uh, equal voting rights in a united state okay they're already i think equal uh, 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 uh gaza is about 2.5 uh, west bank is what about 3.5 or something and uh, uh israel itself has about 1.5 billion So they're roughly equal. Israel has a TFR of about uh, total fertility rate of about three, and the Palestinian high was about nine in the 1990s, 2000s. It's now down to four. So that's basically nine kids per house. Nine kids per house to do what? To act as human shields? To act as uh, uh, you know to uh, swamp uh, uh, the Jew in his own home, essentially. uh so this is how it works now when we talk about right to return there is no legal basis for you to say the right of return will apply to 70 years but it will not apply to 1800 years 
uh, you show me one international law that says either there is the right to return and it's absolute, in which case every Jew has the right to come back, or there is no right to return, period. You also have a lot of a, a whole canon of international law that tells you that a country can be identity based and that it will, uh, 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 they choose the identity. Okay, so for example, France insists that everybody should speak French. It's a linguistic identity. Germany is again a linguistic identity. Italy, and you, you, you know, this is called the uh, use uh, sanguis, uh, the rule of blood, where you can claim, even if you don't speak the language, you can claim ancestry from there and return to that place. Now, if you can claim ancestry in Italy and Germany and France, why can't you claim ancestry in uh, Israel? Okay. This is uh, number one, the right to return. So this is one legal issue out of the way. Uh, Dan, is there any legal issue that you want to bring up? Because I want this to be a historical sort of myth busting and maybe invite our audience to talk about uh, the big points, the big points that they don't get. Maybe the partition of Palestine, et cetera, et cetera, and how it was majority Muslim and partitioned, et cetera, et cetera. But Dan, over to you. Um, yeah, so if we're going to go like full legal rights, there is a good little handbook that's basically, I think, the Jewish People's Rights to the Land of Israel by so Solomon Ben Zimra, which will explain this if you want a deep dive, but I'll say that. But the the sort of legal framework of Israel um, is pretty rock solid. I mean, it's the only country that um, was like created by lawyers when there was international law. So all this Israel's illegal stuff is, is anti-truth. The the framework, legal framework for um, Israel really comes from the 1920 San Remo Accords. So you have the fall of the Ottoman Empire, and the Ottoman Empire is decrepit and failing in the 1800s, 1900s. It's gone on for a long time. There's, they administer Ottoman Palestine poorly. There's a few cities with some population of uh, Jews, Muslims, and Christians, but it, it's desolate outside of that with roaming packs of Bedouins, you know, taking what they wanted. Um, the framework comes, so people often cite the Sykes-Picot Agreement, which is this handshake deal between the British and French during the First World War, where they're fighting the Ottomans, like, you'll get this, you'll get this, you'll get this. Not a real legal framework. The legal framework for the Middle East comes in 1920 from San Remo in Italy. So you have, in Italy, it's important, because if you look at all the previous administrators of land, you can go from the Roman Empire, so the Italians are there. The Turks signed on to the San Remo Accords a year after it was there, so there's the Ottomans. The British and the French were there, so those are the two administrators there. And delegations from the Arab and Jewish populations were there. Japan there too, for whatever. So all parties are present and they agree on the framework for a Jewish homeland in what would be a British mandate for Palestine. And people often don't know what mandates are. Like there was a French mandate for Syria, a French mandate for Lebanon, a British mandate for Iraq. The, you know, people will like twist it and say like, the British mandated that Palestine would be Jewish. And like, no, that's not what it is, that there's a mandate and no, whatever. You can go into the depth of that. That's that's boring legal stuff. Anyway, the mandate for Palestine is actually modern-day Israel and Jordan. So the mandate for Palestine, 1922, that's the legal framework. It's agreed on by all different parties. Then the Heshemites come and they say, we want two states because we, like, we're going back on this bargain. We want two. So the British go, fine. They cut uh, 77 percent of Palestine off. They go east-west Palestine and west Palestine. East Palestine then becomes the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan. The first thing they do is they declare ethnic cleansing of Jews. No Jews allowed. Every Jew get out. 
it's still illegal to this day to sell land to a Jew. If I buy a house in Jordan, the person who sells it to me can be put to death. Like this is the thing. So from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. What about Jordan? Right? What, is, what does that mean? Right? Because you, we all know what the river and the sea, or at least half of us know what the river and the sea are. Um, so you, you have that. So that's the first thing. Now, I, I'm not saying it, Jordan is really Israeli territory. Both sides accepted that. The, the Jewish side accepted the partition, thinking that they would get at least 23% of what they were promised. They were fine with that. So under international law, it's good, except for the ethnic cleansing. But other than that, you have that going on there. Then you have uh, further, we'll say, Arab intransigence going on from there. There's massive upticks in violence. You have the foundation of the Muslim Brotherhood um, coming in, in Egypt, 1920s. Uh, you know, Hassan al-Banna, not a friend of the Jews. His good friend, Haj Amin al-Husseini, who is the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem and related to Yasser Arafat. So you, you really have to, just un to understand where the Palestinian mentality comes from. You, you have to know who the, the, the Grand Mufti was. He was a Nazi. Not like, a oh, he didn't know. He was a literal Nazi. He was friends with Adolf Hitler. He traveled to Germany. He toured the death camps. He saw the death camps and said, oh, this is great, and had plans to build one in Jerusalem. Then, when the Nazis were having trouble deporting Jews to death camps in Hungary because of the partisans, he went to Bosnia, recruited Muslims in there to the SS, was an honorary leader, like he was given like the leader of this battalion. He wasn't there making military commands because he wasn't that guy, but he was honored as a like SS general. And, you know, he then went back. So at the very beginning, the British like propped him up as like, like what was the Arab council or whatever. Like, you'll have to you correct that. There's so many names. But he was the original um, person the Jews were forced to bargain with for peace. So it was Hajimin al-Husseini. And then, you know, all this, th there's these lies of like, the Jews came in and stole the land in the 1920s and kicked the, the Arab farmers out. If you read the Peel Commission report, because there were massive Arab riots in 1930s, like mass violence where they started just killing Jews and British people. And they actually got Jewish immigration to mandated Palestine shut down during the Holocaust because of mass violence. But if you read the Peel Commission, Hussein is very clear. They go on this whole, so the Jews, the farmers, he's like, he says, no, 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 the Jews bought that land legally. That's not our problem. Like, we don't care that they're here legally. We just want to kill them all. Like, he's very clear. He's like, we made up all these lies. We don't believe them. We just use them for purposes of committing genocide. Like, he said it, like, if you read Peel's, like, biography, he's like, he was very clear and very, like, like, just matter-of-factly, like, yes, we're lying. We don't care that we're lying. We just want to kill them all. And that's sort of the, that's the foundation of, let's say, you know, Palestinian society was this guy, the Grand Mufti. So you go on, and then you have the 1947 partition plan, which was, you know, partitioning again. It's a crazy plan. Um, like, the Jews get the desert and a few things here and there. Jerusalem's going to be an international city. I've never heard of a stupider idea than an international city. Surprise, surprise, that failed. But the Jews accepted the partition plan. The Arabs did not. And the, including the Palestinian leadership, uh, Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, um, Egypt, all of them declared war on Israel and then lost the war in Israel game land. So legally, if we're talking, it's not like you are allowed to accrue new land through defensive warfare. If I declare war on Abishit and like he comes in, like ends up, you know, I come in with a gun trying to kill him and he stops me and then takes my house. Yeah, it's his house now, right? It, I declared war. I lost the war. 
Um, that's sort of the legal framework. And then you have the West Bank is sort of controlled by Jordan and Gaza is controlled by Egypt from 48 to 67, where again, there's another war and, and Israel gains territory through there. So if you look at any, like anyone who says international law, Israel's violating international law, hasn't, doesn't know a thing about international law, can't cite one law or one example. Because it's all, it's all nonsense. So that's a bit more of the sort of background. I'll, I'll let Abhijit continue from there. But, you know, I want to contextualize this in the Indian sense. If you oppose the Jewish right to return in the 20s, uh, 30s and all of that, where does that leave Fijian Indians? Where does that leave Guyanese and Surinamese Indians? Where does that leave South African Indians? We know the Ugandans already kicked us out. What about Kenyan Indians, Nigerian Indians, and Tanzanian Indians? They all get kicked out. Uh, what do you do with all of them? You know, I can understand Arabs saying no right of return. But for India to have that position is absolutely, it, it's a joke. And remember when Idi Amin kicked out all the Indians from Uganda, Nehru did not take them back. It was the UK that had to take all the Indians and Rishi Sunak and uh, uh, Preeti Patel, they are all results of that particular migration to Britain. Uh, they did not come back to India. Right. Now, I can show you hundreds of different migrations like this, voluntary migrations that have happened. Let's talk about uh, 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 Palestinians. And they actually practice this, by the way. Palestinians, for the longest time, had no working rights in Jordan. They had to live in miserable, nasty little refugee camps. And then when Rania marries Abdullah, that is when, you know, the process of integration really starts because, you know, the king married a Palestinian lady. In Lebanon, everybody opposes giving them jobs. They're meant to live in these camps. They're meant to live horrible, nasty, miserable little lives. Uh, they are not integrated out there. I think people have forgotten that in 1990, when Yasser Arafat supported Saddam Hussein, how Palestinians were treated across the Gulf in Bahrain, in Doha, in Saudi Arabia, in the Emirates, they were kicked out of their jobs, they were kicked out of their flats, uh, and they still have a very poor opinion of Palestinians. They're all for Palestine in Israel, they're just not for Palestinians anywhere around them. Okay? And nobody wants to talk about that. Because, you know, the general thing is, yo, man, you're all Arabs to us. Like, you know, you're Abhijit and you're Kushal, but you all look like brown fucks too. Uh, I mean, I can't tell the difference. You're all brown. Like all white people look the same to us, all brown people look the same to the, uh, uh, them, and all Arabs look the same to us. Okay? Uh, this is the kind of attitude you'll have out there. And it's very, very problematic. Now, let's look a bit further from San Remo. Do you know the Peel Commission actually found that Jewish immigration into Israel through, through the 20s and 30s had increased the per capita income of that area exponentially? It had provided massive economic opportunities. They were turning the desert green. The first kibbutzes and things like that were set up in the Negev. Uh, they did dry water farming and things like that. Uh, they actually provided jobs to the Bedou who lived in that area. It is, if you've been to the Negev, you'll know it's it's one of the driest. It, it, it's an extension of the Rabal Khali and, uh, uh, you know, uh, where uh, that area around uh, uh, Ailat and uh, Aqaba, where uh, 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 Lawrence of Arabia is shot, the driest part of the Arabian desert. And they were giving jobs. They were massively giving jobs to local Arabs. But the problem was the more jobs they gave, 
the more it exacerbated political tension because the feudal elites there wanted their cut. So the more money a kibbutz makes, the more cut you have to pay to the local uh, Arab mediator or little feudal sheikh or whatever he is out there. Uh, it became an extortion business. And we know this in India, right? We know how Bihar and UP are because that is exactly how the Muslim elites function out here and Muslim vote bank politics functions out here. It's, it's not the average Muslim who benefits. In fact, the average Muslim benefiting actually goes against the Sunni Muslim benefiting, not the Shias. The Shias, uh, the Shia trajectory in India is very different. But the Sunni is benefiting. The more the people benefit, the more it breaks the hold of the feudal Sunni lord over his little ghetto. And it affects him, which is why the riots start. And that is exactly what was happening. The riots were triggered by economic recession. The riots were triggered by economic growth. And this is why Hamas can't tolerate uh, alt, uh, the economy of Gaza improving, because every time the economy of Gaza improves, new centers of power, new centers of uh, uh, wealth emerge, which become new centers of power, which then become new centers of employment and uh, you know social welfare, which then threatens Hamas. It's the problem is what we you know the left like Lenin used to say you know every idea is worth a hundred uh, worth a thousand pages of theory. They're very good at concocting gobbledygook and, you know, coming up with uh, oppression theory or, I don't know, uh, Daniel's hair is black, therefore he's an oppressor theory. Or Abhijit is bald like the uh, uh, like the Iron Dome system, the Kipat Barzan system. Well, no, I have hair and therefore I'm oppressing you. I'm oppressing you yeah, with my hair. Yeah. This is a follicle holocaust. He's perpetrating a follicular holocaust against Holocaust. Him. Holocaust, that's it. Holocaust, that's it. Holocaust. So this is a this is a verbal holocaust going on. They will talk shit like this. They come up with jargon. I mean, sometimes I'm actually impressed by their level of coming up with jargon. What do you do? So this is the next legal issue, which is, and you know, here's the problem. The Negev was empty. Uh, they'll show you this map of Israel at the time of partition. We'll show you the Jews only in this part. And the rest of it was all Muslim majority. What they won't show you is where those Muslim majorities were concentrated and how 90% of that land was actually vacant because it was uncultable. Uh, people don't realize this, that Israel has become green after the state of Israel was formed through a very systematic policy, but it used to be green in Roman times. It was actually deforested in Roman times to build you know, ships and whatever military ventures and things like that. Remember the cedars of Lebanon, very famous. It's there on the flag of Lebanon, except apparently you don't find any cedars in Lebanon anymore. It's extinct. Uh, even though every pharaoh talks about the cedars of Lebanon coming down from Sidon and Tyre and all of that. Uh, and we know because we've found remains of these in the uh, 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 Egyptian temples and tombs in the Valley of the Kings and so on and so forth, but they're not there anymore. So this area was deforested. Now it's being reforested, and that again is a problem for them. The next thing we need to talk about is they actually want genocide. They don't want to live side by side with the Jewish people. If they wanted to live side by side with the Jewish people, a modus vivendi could have been worked out. This isn't a plan. From river to sea is what exactly? You know, at least if you said Hindi, Chini, Bhai, Bhai, or, or the uh, this thing version of it, Arab, uh, Arab, Yahudi, Bhai, Bhai, you could understand that. 
but they're not saying Arab Yahudi bye bye. They're saying from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Which is basically they're going to throw you all into the sea. This kicking Jews out into the sea, it's a very old trope that's been around for a few uh, 100, 120, 130 years at least. Right? Uh, I don't think people realize that. I think there's a huge communication gap in how much I was actually watching. I was on TV all evening talking about the strike that happened on the hospital in Gaza, uh, which we now know was an Islamic Jihad rocket uh, falling down on that particular parking lot. But uh, the level of saturation coverage that is done by the other side is incredible. So even when you have the truth, it doesn't matter because one side is completely saturated. What do you do? What do you do in the face of saturation coverage? You know, it requires a bit of a PhD to understand the Israeli situation. It's very easy to find fault with Israel. Uh, it takes a bit more brains to understand the Israeli side. Let's talk about targeting, okay? Let's assume what Israel is doing is collective punishment. The issue is the Geneva Convention talks about human shields. Okay. If you are in a situation of a human shield, where does the onus lie? The onus lies on the hostage taker not to have the human shield. There is actually no recommendation on the Gene in, the Gen in any of the Geneva Conventions on what the adversary has to do in case of a human shield. Do you know... It is actually legit to shoot the human shield in such cases, simply because there is no legislation on it. There is no convention on it. So I want to know, uh, like, you know, I'm uh, seeing some uh, 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 criticism in the comments. I want to know two things. If somebody takes a human shield, can anyone in the audience tell me, what do you think is an accurate legal ethical response, number one? Number two, given that 1,400 Israelis were raped, tortured, killed, uh, mostly overwhelmingly non-combatants, what exactly is a proportional response? Uh, is Israel meant to go rape, kill, uh, pluck out the genitals of, uh, behead uh, uh, Gazans? So two questions for our audience. Yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll add to this. There, there, there's more here too where... It's you, you did a very good job outlining just how poorly the Palestinian people are treated outside uh, by, by their biggest supporters, the, the loudest Palestinian supporters. I mean, they weren't even allowed out of the camps until the 90s in Lebanon, and they still have second class citizenship um, officially. But it's also the United Nations created a different definition of refugees for Palestinians than anyone else. So you'll find people like Palestinians coming and be like, I've been a refugee for 75 years. How? How? Right? So there was there was like 750,000 refugees created during the, the partition, let's say, that were Arab, and 850,000 Jewish ones. Except Israel took in the refugees and then made them Israelis and gave them citizenship. And it was hard for Israel in the 50s. Like, Israel struggled for its first couple decades quite mightily, um, but integrated this population. The definition of a Palestinian refugee by the UNRWA, they, they have their own specific organization, is anyone who spent two years in the land of Israel from, I can't remember, is, like, is it like 1922 until like 
19, like 40 something. It's like, if you have a family member who spent two years in Israel and then you left, don't even need to be kicked out. You could have been kicked out by the Egyptian army. You could have just left. You're a Palestinian refugee. Not only are you a Palestinian refugee, your kid is born a Palestinian refugee. That kid could then leave Jordan, whatever, go to Europe, make something of himself, have a good business, meet a wife, get out of the thing, have three children. Who are they? Palestinian refugees. Those Palestinian refugees can go on to marry like the literal queen of Spain and then become the king of Spain. And they are one king of Spain to a Palestinian refugee and their children will be princes, princesses, and Palestinian refugees. So this is why you get, and this is done purely for propaganda thing. This is why you get the the numbers. Oh, the number of Palestinian refugees has increased by 400,000 this year. Yes, it's called having babies. Like it, it, they're just making more Palestinian refugees because no other, like if, like if you were kicked out of Bangladesh and then you had to go to India, you're a refugee. And then after a couple of years, you get Indian citizenship and then you're no longer a refugee because that's how it works. Like I have friends who are former refugees. My friend Salman, it was an Iranian refugee, was an Iranian refugee. Now he's a Canadian. Just FYI, I am Bangladeshi, by the way. My grandmother was kicked out of Bangladesh. But case in point, you are now Indian. You're not a Bangladeshi refugee, right? This, this, is, this is an insane definition. But because of this, and Palestinian refugees get four times the amount of funding as a normal refugee. So it's an embezzlement scandal from these Arab countries. They want to keep the Palestinians poor because then they get to house Palestinian refugees. They get four times the amount of funding per regular refugee. They embezzle that. It's a massive cash cow. So they can keep the Palestinians poor and oppressed use them as a political hammer against the Israelis, then go to the world and say, look how cruel the Jews are because look, they keep making refugees when in fact you're keeping them, like the open air prisons is not Gaza. Like a Lebanese Palestinian refugee camp, like that's a literal open air prison because you're not allowed to leave those, right? At least Israel gives work permits to Gazans and it lets them work in Israel. That's not the same thing as Lebanon. So you have this complete inversion of history and 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 logic and, and, and actual- Incidentally, sorry, Daniel, to interrupt. You know, these work permits are why Hamas knew on 7 and 8 October exactly where to hit, how to hit, and whom to hit. Because all these kibbutzes, Dahal Oz, uh, Berry, and all those places, they all employ uh, Gazan labor who cross the border every single day to come and work. And it seems a lot of them were tracking movements, taking photos on their phone, like, you know, oh, look, I'm taking selfie. Oops, look at the major general of the IDF behind me. Um, so they knew who was basically stationed where. They knew generally what the uh, uh, locations, etc., were. And it was exactly these migrant, not migrant laborers, day laborers, they come in the morning and go back in the evening, who took all the intel for Hamas to carry out those attacks. Sorry, Daniel, I'll hand it back. No, that is a good point. I mean, the kindness of the Israeli population has never been repaid to, to Gaza. Like, there's another thing, like, you know, you'll see people justifying um, uh, a lot of violence against Israelis because of settlements. Um, you know, this is sort of the term people use for Jews living places, right? And the logic behind settlements is, listen, if there is a Jew who lives three blocks down from you, wouldn't you be incensed? to commit mass murder? I mean, isn't there any, what, what other response could there be? But on this whole settlement thing, remember, Israel completely withdrew from Gaza in 2005. 
the Israeli army uprooted every single Jew in Gaza, forced them out of their homes, gave the Gazans their homes, their infrastructure, hydroponics, greenhouses. They burned it all down and then elected Hamas on a platform of genocidal um, jihad. Like if you read Hamas's charter, they're very clear. They want to destroy Israel because it's nature of being Jewish and they are Islamic, very clear. They also want to kill every single Jew in the world. They're very clear about that. Like the Hamas charter is straight up ISIS. I, I have a question, Daniel, for you. But people say this is not a religious conflict. It is actually only a land conflict. Well, what do you have to say to that? No, the, these people These people are usually just trying to be sound smart. Um, and if you can't take the religious conflict from either side of it, out of it. No, it's not purely religious. Yes, there are elements of land and resources and other geopolitics that factor into it. But anyone who's, who ignores the religious context of, of this, like, listen, I grew up Jewish, not the most religious guy. I'm not wearing a kippah right now. But, you know, the Jewish connection to Israel is strong. Like, there's a reason why Jews picked Israel. Like, why don't they just go somewhere else? there is nowhere else. And if Jews tried to live in Madagascar, you'd still have people mad about it there. So you don't get to tell Jews where to live is, is our thing. But there's a deep connection to the Israel, particularly Jerusalem and the temple. Like a lot of our holidays are centered around Jerusalem and going to the temple, Sukkot, Passover, Shavuot. Um, you know, it had to be changed a bit with the destruction of the temples. But there's deep, it's like an ethno- um, geographical religion in a lot of ways, like the, the, the nation of Israel. Um, it, the, the entire religion, like the covenant is like, follow my laws. God says, follow my laws and commandments and, you know, be, you know, the voice of righteousness in the world. And in exchange, you get the land of Israel deal, cut off the tip of your penis, right? That's the, the, the central that's Judaism, right? In, in, in 30 seconds or less. And then you have Islamic, um, radicals who believe any land ever owned by Muslims or ruled by Muslims must be ruled by Islam in perpetuity, right? So this is why the Hamas charter has the return of Spain and Portugal to the Islamic Wafik, because according to them, Spain and Portugal must also be part of the caliphate because it once was part of a caliphate at some point. And again, if you Hamas are Islamic radicals, there's a group, the second most powerful group in Gaza is called Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Now, I don't know about you, but I think the existence of that group shows there might be some Palestinians who have an interest in doing Islamic Jihad. Maybe, right? Just maybe. And I think that's another sort of part of the conflict when you have people in the West who look at Palestinian Islamic Jihad and go, ooh, what could this be about? Like, ooh, not looking at this, what, nothing to see here. Um, right, so see, it's about it's actually he misinterpreted that it's not P I J is actually pandas and giraffes misspelled in Arabic. It's spelled differently. It's actually oh, I I missed that one. I miss oh that silly Daniel. I here thinking that the people launching rockets talking about world domination had something to do with the the, the Islamic jihad, um, but. Uh, well, now that I know it was pandas and giraffes, I guess we'll, we'll, we'll go that. But, you know, every talking point that the, let's say, pro-Palestinians have is actually disproved by Gaza, right? A lot of people who are, like don't know the difference between Gaza and the West Bank 
I mean, they, they've never been ruled by the same people. One was Jordan, one was Egypt. They have different dialects and different cultures. Like, again, they've never been administered by the same people. Like, there's no connection between Gaza and the West Bank other than this Palestinian narrative of, you know, destroying Israel. Like, that's what connects them. But Gaza had all the Jews removed from it. It was made Judenrein. That was That was the big thing by academics. If you listen to Western academics, the reason why Arabs are mad is because Jews are around them. And of course, they're going to fly off into a genocidal rage. If they see a Jew, what do you expect? Like the, the, the incredibly racist logic there is mind boggling. But hey, that's I, I, you don't you know, Harvard degrees aren't cheap. So if you want to, you know, I, I've just given you a crash course on how to be a, a, a master's uh, student at Harvard University. But that was disproven. All the settlements were moved. Occupation, the Israeli army withdrew, gave Gaza a state. Oh, no, it's because they're poor. Israel provided them. Food, fuel, water, electricity. One of the main points, uh, like uh, big fighting points between Israel and Gaza in the last 17 years, since 2005, is a lot of militants, often it's PIJ, but sometimes Hamas, will fire rockets at the power plant that provides power to Gaza and not Israel. And like, it's a ridiculous thing where like the Israelis are trying to protect the Palestinian power plant because they know the reason why Hamas and PIJ want to destroy the power plant is so they could blow up their own power plant have the lights go off, and then have their people go to the world and say, look what Israel did, right? And and just, and as you saw, everyone will uncritically believe, you know, the word of a terrorist organization over the Israeli government almost instantaneously, because, you know, that's just the, what the world is. So every single talking point that the left has had on Israel-Palestine is thoroughly debunked by Gaza. The And there's a big thing, and the Israeli left got their way, and they got the withdrawal in 2005. It failed. It failed catastrophically. Like the, it, the appeasement of terrorism doesn't work, never has worked, and always results in more terrorism. The, I, I think that's the lesson that needs to be learned. Um, no, we could we could go. Can back I? To that. I I just want to quickly because he's talking about the Hamas charter. I want to read out the lovely bit about Jews. Uh, this is from the Hamas charter, and it's quoting Surah two six nine two of Sahih Bukhari. Uh, nevertheless, the Islamic resistance movement aspires to bring the promise of Allah to pass, no matter how long it takes, as the Prophet Muhammad, may peace be upon him, said, quote, beginning quote, uh, the time of judgment will not come until Muslims fight the Jews and kill them, and until the Jew hides behind the rocks and trees, and then the rocks and trees will say, O Muslim, O servant of Allah, there is a Jew hiding behind me. Come and kill him. This is the Hamas charter. You see, they're all human rights activists. They're not genocidal at all. Yeah. Did you go over the part where there's one tree they're mad at? Because there's one tree that's going to be friends of the Jews and they're mad at that tree. Like, they're, they're, they're lunatics, right? This is, they're, they're legit lunatics. So this is the problem, right? Like, one of the best news organizations covering Israel-Palestine is the Babylon Bee, which is a satire site. But they're literally the best news source. Like, I mean, years ago, they put out one article like, um, it was something like, conflict in the Middle East as uh, one group wants to kill all the Jews and the other group is Jews who don't want to be killed. Um, you know, and like, yeah, that's that's the problem there. Um, you you have this. And I saw someone in the chat asking, like, why is, isn't Israel allowing Gaza access to their own water? And the answer is, they're allowed. They're just not giving Gaza their water and their electricity and their fuel. It's a war. Israel's not going to provide fuel and supplies and water. Only 6% of the water in Gaza comes from 
Israel anyway, but they're not going to give them free stuff to help them wage the war. Gaza's allowed to make their own water. They just, Hamas put out the video, they rip up all the infrastructure that the Europeans give them and use it to build homemade rockets. So all the internal water piping has been torn up and used as scrap to fire rockets into Israel. So why don't they have water? Yeah, because they prioritize the jihad over the water. That's not that's not Israel's fault. It's it's not that. Like, I do think I saw some people in the chat wanting to talk about the Balfour Declaration. So I'll go back to this and like the you know people will because it's adjust to Lord Rothschild and all that. The major Zionist movement in Europe picks up in the late 1880s. Uh, you know Theodor Holzl over the um, Dreyfus affair. So Dreyfus was this French military officer who was sort of blamed um, for for undermining the French thing, the German. It was BS. There was no evidence. But this was sort of the shame, the je cues. And it was sort of a wake-up call for a lot of European Jews that things are going to get bad. Let's uh, let's try and get out of here and, and reestablish the state of Israel. So you had the British make two promises um, during the First World War. In 1917, they make the Balfour Declaration, where uh, the Zionists finally lobby. Like, there's a story. Like, Rothschild, the Rothschilds were not on board with the with Zionism from day one. Um, they they were pretty clear, like they didn't want it, they were comfortable. It wasn't until the Zionist movement actually gained um, significant uh, following in the wider Jewish community did they then pressure the Rothschilds into writing the letter to Balfour and all that. So, you know, the whole Rothschilds created Israel, like, no, it was the Jews who had to push the Rothschilds into writing the letter and the rabbis and all that. But you had this massive Zionist movement, so you, you had the British make two promises. You know, one to the Jewish community, so they would help support the war effort, and then one to the Arabs um, and the Saudis, so they would help support the war effort. Like, they promised Jews a state of Israel, and they promised um, the Saudis basically a global caliphate, right? They overpromised everything. It was war. They made deals and all this. So this is why I say it really starts in San Remo. It's not Balfour. It's not Sykes-Picot. Like, these are handshake, random agreements, sort of declarations. The real legal framework comes in 1920 San Remo. Like, that's that's where we start. And if you want to go into, like, you know, the Zionist movement exists you know, in, in uh, the Sephardic Jews in North Africa, way before it exists in, in, in Europe. I mean, Europeans get, get more attention in this world, such as life. We can debate about why and how and if, sure. But, you know, there's always been this movement and there's been this lie you've now seen pushed by Sisi recently that if the Jews and Arabs got along so well before Israel. I mean, the Muslims are always so nice to the Jews. Why would the Jews do this to them? BS. Absolute BS. Like, one, we were dimmies, second-class citizens. Like, we had to pay the jizya. In, like, parts of uh, Iran under Islamic rule, uh, Jews were not allowed outside in the rain because if the rain touched a Jew and then washed off and touched someone else, it would, it would pass the uncleanliness. The yellow star that Hitler used to identify Jews came from Yemen. Yemen did that to the Jews way before Hitler did. Again, Hitler learned a lot of anti-Semitism from his tour of the, the Islamic world and, and his tour guide, Haj Amin al-Husseini, there. So... You know, Jews were persecuted in Morocco, Tunisia, this, like this, 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 the Andalusian paradise myth that we have uh, pushed out. Like, yeah, at some point, the, the, the Islamic rule in Spain for a couple hundred years was less anti-Semitic than the Spanish Inquisition of the 1890s, or the 1490s. But being less anti-Semitic than the Spanish, Spanish Inquisition doesn't mean you are not anti-Semitic, right? So... By by no reasonable modern day standards would you ever be able to claim that Jews and Muslims coexisted on a level that would be acceptable in the 20th century onward. 
Um, so, you know, there's all those lies. And and one of the big fomenting lies, uh, and you saw Rashida Taleb pu push this stuff all the time. She pushed the, Jew, the Palestinian people welcomed Jews during the Holocaust. They saw the horrors of the Holocaust and the Palestinians were so kind. And they said, come Jews, come, 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 come Jews, we'll save you. And then the Jews turned on them. No, the Palestinians bombed and murdered and raped to prevent Jews from coming to British Mandate Palestine. They murdered British officers and made demands that they didn't want a Jew, even though you pointed out that they all got rich off the Jews, right? And, and this inversion of history, right? And this foments a lot of the anger because there's a lot of people in the Muslim world right now who live under this delusion that they were so kind to the Jewish people. They gave us everything and, and then we turned on them. And that's just not what happened. At, at no point in Islamic history was there ever any type of like reasonable coexistence. Like, yes, it was better than some parts in the Christian world. And Jews had had such a terrible history that by comparison, you know, Morocco for a few years was fine. But even during Maimonides' time, like there were still anti-Semitic riots and pogroms like that Maimonides wrote about. So yeah, were there less pogroms than Eastern Europe at the time? Maybe. But when we talk about less, there's still pogroms, right? There's still you know, anti-Semitic riots, Jews could be taken out of their homes at any point and raped and murdered and, and thrown in jail or done whatever, like second-class citizens, dimmies, right? If they didn't pay the taxes, they didn't do this, like the, the, it was not equal rights. At no point were we ever equal citizens of any Islamic country. Now, just to put it in context for the Indian viewer, Abhijit, I think uh, this will give them a better context and I want you to explain this. Uh, I'll use the analogy of the Ram Mandir, Abhijit, how mm. the Ram Mandir movement was a 600-year movement and cases were being filed even when the British were ruling India. Now, yes. a lot of times uh, when it comes to the Israel-Palestine conflict, Abhijit, uh, I hear arguments like, oh, the British just carved out, took this land and gave it to the Jews. It was always Palestinian land. They were not historically fighting for this land is the argument. Okay. So, you know, here's the point. You know, uh, we're all so, I mean, leftists are so good at, you know, identity. We need to discover these new identities uh, and, you know, uh, the imagined identity of the nation state and all that, blah, blah. Uh, I want to show you uh, how the divisions, the Eyalets and the Mustafirids, the Eyalets were the uh, uh, provinces, uh, uh, kind of self-governing under the Ottomans, and the Mustafirids were direct rule from Istanbul. Okay. Uh, you tell me where you see Palestine anywhere here. They did not have a pre-modern identity. The Jews, in fact, had an identity of Palestine in the 20s and 30s that the Palestinians did not have of themselves in the 20s and the 30s. This entire term is a concoction of epic proportions. And, you know, let me just show you this. Because if the Palestinians had already been a people, you know, even Lebanon is an artificial creation. Kuwait is an artificial creation. Kuwait was created by the British for a reason. Lebanon was created by the French to artificially create a Christian majority out of greater Syria. You know, if you look at the traditional trade routes out there, there were four big cities which controlled the entire region. There was Baghdad, there was Halab, Aleppo, uh, Damascus, and Jerusalem. 
Now, these four is where all the trade used to go, all the military decisions used to be taken. Jerusalem was militarily important because it's up in the hills. So it was a very defensible position. Uh, 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 Damascus is where a lot of the trade used to go from. Aleppo is where the uh, northern trade used to go from. Baghdad was for historical reasons and things like that. And you, you remember, Kushan, we've spoken about this. All of these four cities are not new. They are all Bronze Age cities which have been developed. So, for example, Baghdad, one of the uh, uh, outskirts of Baghdad is this food, which was the Sassanid capital of Persia. Right. And this is why the Arabs call uh, Iraq, uh, er Iraq Arab. And Iran is called uh, Iraq Ajab. You know, Ajam isn't exactly a kafir, but it's a uh, uh, it's it's a it's a Muslim who's not really a Muslim. You know, Persians aren't really Muslims. Uh, Saddam Hussein wrote this uh, in one of his earliest so-called academic papers was uh, why uh, Persians, mosquitoes, and Jews must be swatted and killed. Uh, that was one of the lovely uh, academic works that got passed by the University of Baghdad. Uh, so I'm going to show you some maps. So I'm going to present. Uh, and this is very easy because it's from, uh, uh, what do you call it? It's from uh, Wikipedia. So can you see? Yeah, I'll put it up. Yeah. So this is in 1975. And I want you to see what this is out here. Do you see anything here at all that looks like Syria? These are called Sanjaks. Sanjaks are basically districts or counties. In uh, America, you call them counties. In India, you call them districts. Uh, you don't. The Vilayat and the Elayat, see, now here's the Vilayat of Syria. It is nowhere near what we know as Syria, which is technically here. But there is Aleppo, Halab, Vilayat. Right? Uh, the Mustafirat of Lebanon, because this is direct rule. It's a tiny little part, which is direct rule from Istanbul. And this is the Mustafirat of Jerusalem. Where is Palestine out here? Do you see anything? And see yeah, the I've... division here is, these are all Sanjaks, which are other parts of, uh, like I said, districts of the, um, uh, of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, there's nothing out there. Where is the modern Syrian identity out here? Where is the modern Lebanese identity out here? Where is the modern Palestinian or Jordanian identity out here? Because remember, these Sakhars, the uh, outlier areas, were complete. It, it was like the wild, wild west. It was they didn't even need to exercise control out there because you know it was badlands, really. Right. Uh, then let's go to the reorganization of the empire in. Uh, 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 1899, which had ha already happened by 1899. Uh, there are actually many more maps. I, I couldn't find them at short notice. I should have probably kept them ready. This is how it was then further divided into uh, 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 later on. Aleppo was different. Hama was different. Damascus was different. And anybody who knows the history of Syria will tell you Damascus and Aleppo have never gotten along. Uh, one of the roots of the 2011 civil war that broke out was in fact this constant, uh, and it is historic. It is historic because the Zangid rulers uh, and uh, Salahuddin Ayubi, who came from it, also faced this thing, this constant uh, uh, war between uh, Aleppo and Damascus. 
the 2011 civil war is actually this historical thousand, maybe 2000 year old conflict that broken out where there was a drought in the north uh, in, the, uh, in the Aleppo region. And there was a huge migration of people throughout 2011 to the south, which exacerbated resource competition in the south. We've spoken about this before on one of your podcasts, I think, uh, 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 Kushal. So look at here. The Lebanon Mustafirat has been increased. Beirut has been turned into a vilayat now, but Jerusalem remains a Mustafirat because it is one of the important parts of uh, Islam. And, oh, sorry. Uh, and let me go here. You will also see that uh, the Yemen vilayat bears absolutely no historical relation to Yemen. Makkah Sanjak. Makkah still hasn't been made direct rule. Uh, there are further maps of this. And in fact, the whole idea. When they tell you that Israel is a colonial project, Palestine is a colonial project. The borders of Palestine were British mandate Palestine, British mandate Transjordan. The whole identity of Jordan and Palestine comes from the British. The whole identity of Lebanon and France comes from the French. You know, it, it is so incredibly academically dishonest to then claim that it is a, 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 a colonial project when you know anybody with even half a rudimentary... I mean, look, can, can, can you look up Wikipedia or not? I mean, it's not rocket science to look up Wikipedia. Sure, a PhD takes time. It requires a lot of applications. Maybe you'll get it, maybe you won't. Can you at least look up Wikipedia for historic maps? They won't even do that. How dishonest is that, Kusha? I'm sorry, I'm ranting. Yeah. I'll okay, rant for Canada. No, that map has changed my perspective. Like, what the hell? Like, I'm not an expert in that area, but Dan, go ahead. All right. I mean, let's talk about the etymology of, of, of Palestine for a bit. So one of the things, you know, us evil Zionists will do when debating a Palestinian on the internet is, and there's a bunch of people spamming Palestine in the chat, wherever you go in this stuff. Name me one Palestinian ruler, politician, president, prime minister prior to Yasser Arafat. Give me, give me the name. What was Palestine before Israel? What was the country of Palestine? Who was one leader? What was its currency? What was its capital? Name me something about Palestine prior to Yasser Arafat. Give me one leader, right? If you want to go Hajime al Husseini, well, yeah, that Nazi, sure. But give me, give me one leader of Palestine. What was his title? What was his position? What did he do? Give me his Wikipedia page. Give me something. Can't do it. Now, if we go back to where did the term Palestine come from, you know, the root word of Palestine is from the Philistines, plishtut uh, in, in the Hebrew thing. So you might know the story of David and Goliath. David was the second king of Israel. He becomes famous for the slingshot to the face of Goliath, the Palestinian ding-dong, right? Now, the, the Plushut, the Palestinians, or the, the um, Philistines, were actually like a seafaring people, we think, from like the Mediterranean. They, weren't, they didn't call themselves Philistines. We call them out in the Bible because Plushut means invader. So the root of of, of, of Philistine is actually invader. Now we get to the first century after Christ. Uh, it's about the year 100 plus. Uh, and there's the Bar Kokhba religious revolts against Roman occupation of Judea. So it's called Judea. Jews are from Judea. Arabs are from Arabia. And there's a Jewish revolt against the Romans. As punishment for the revolt, they rename the area Syria-Palestina after the Philistine. So it was a humiliation thing where they named the land uh basically Palestine, to spite the Jews, to name the land after their biblical enemy, to embarrass them for revolting. 
Now it gets even better. Why did um, East Palestine, when it was partitioned, become Jordan immediately? Because Arabs don't like the name Palestine because they cannot say the name Palestine. There is no put in the Arab language. Palestine isn't an Arab. All these Arabs claiming to be indigenous, families going back 40 billion years. We've been we've been in this land longer than the universe has existed. I'm sorry, you're Arabs. There is no Palestine in Arab. That's why if you listen to Palestinians in Palestine, they say Palestine or Palestine because they literally cannot say Palestine because there is no word in Arabic that has a p sound. So when the Palestinians say they're indigenous to Israel... Just to contextualize. Sorry, just to contextualize. You remember this for our Indian viewers, uh, how uh, nameplates in Pakistan were changed to Al-Pakistan because P is a Urdu uh, alphabet. There is no P in Arabic. And so they changed uh, Pakistan in the number plates, in the car number plates, to Al-Pakistan. Exactly right. So it, this this debunks itself, and like the insanity of it when when people say Palestinians are indigenous to this land, like the literal root word of the of Palestinian is invader of Israel, like that plishtut invaders of Israel. Like so, the invaders are indigenous. They're the indigenous invaders. Like it, it's so insane. It's so easily debunked. If you know anything about the Arab language, if you know anything about how to how to run a functioning Google search, if you know anything about basic history, all of this is immediately debunked. Uh, within five minutes, the the question is why aren't people, you know, talking about what the truth is? And instead of doing this, and, and you know, we layers on, you know, anti-Semitism, Arab funding, you know, ideological hardliners, you know, communists want to use this for their own personal thing. Like the Soviet Union was against Israel, so blah 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 blah. There's a whole we we can we can do another five hour podcast on why people won't listen to this podcast, um, but. Yeah, I mean, the, the whole narrative from, from the Palestinians is just outright falsifiable on its face. And, and you know, there is multiple verifications of this uh, Palestine word, because uh, I would urge everybody to read this book by Israel Finkelstein called, uh, you know, The History Buried or something. Just go to Amazon and Google Israel Finkelstein. Fantastic book. Uh, if you read in the Sea Peoples, one of the Sea Peoples who are basically invaders are the Peleset. Okay, uh, who are believed to be uh, the original where Palestinian got its name. You also see at this particular period the settlement of the area of the Levant we call Israel today, where a completely alien culture is introduced, who incidentally eat copious quantities of pork. That is a very big differentiator that the people living up in the hills in Jerusalem do not eat pigs. But the, the Peleset, who we think are the Palestinians, bring an entirely new culture and they're chomping down on huge quantities of pigs because pork is one of the most common bones that you find out there in these Palestinian city-states. So then, okay, maybe we can start taking a few questions. So Abhijit, I know you have to go. So maybe I'll uh, ask you a question um, and then I'll, uh, I'll because a lot of questions are for Daniel too. So Terewale questions, I'll go first. So did the Patriot Act and some similar acts in the West also kind of do a job uh, in radicalizing people? Uh, so how, how does one deal with the future Look, of conflicts like this? You, 
look, some some conflicts you just have to accept are intractable. Uh, and, you know, it, it's easier to deal with conflicts when you accept their intractability. Uh, look at India. Uh, you know, we always thought the India-Pakistan problem was solvable and it never brought us any peace. And the moment this government tried for the first two years, then it stopped trying. For the last seven years, we've ignored Pakistan and things have never been better for us. Kashmir is completely peaceful at the moment. Sure, you'll have one or two big terror attacks, but that's the same terror attacks you'll have in, say, New York or Barcelona or something like that, which will be sporadic once every 10, 12 years or something. It is not a state of insurgency. Uh, we refuse to talk to the Pakistanis at any level. We haven't spoken to them in the last seven years. How good is our life, man? How good is our life? We haven't had a major terror attack uh, or, or a state of insurgency for such a long time now. Have people forgotten that? Accepting intractability, you know, there's this belief somehow that intractability is bad. Sometimes intractability is good. But Abhijit, a follow-up question, because I know you have to go in a couple of minutes. But what about all those Palestinians? Like I was reading a survey, only 30% Palestinians, that survey says, or 31% support Hamas. What about the others? Like did they, they did not sign up for this, right? They did not, and they live in a state of terror. You know, I spent 10 days in Gaza. Uh, I have never been in a more dystopian place. North Korea was better. I can honestly tell you those 14 days in North Korea were better. Yeah, the food was really shitty, okay? Because in North Korea, all I got was rancid pork, and uh, uh, I couldn't eat meat, so I could only eat cabbage all the time and uh, uh, foreigner food that they used to cook up. But Gaza, okay, great food. Uh, I'm sorry, Daniel, but Israelis really don't know how to make shawarma. The Arabs just uh, make much better shawarma, okay? Uh, you guys really suck at shawarma. Please don't make shawarma. It, 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 it's a crime against shawarma. Uh, but other than I will, I will second that. I've been there. Yeah, the Israeli food's overrated. Yeah. Uh, and other than that, the fear, the kind of uh, externalization of everything. So, you know, I deal with fucked up conflict societies. Uh, when I used to go to Kashmir at the peak of the insurgency in the 90s with my dad, because after he retired from the defense ministry, you know, he was a left a lefty. So he wanted to collect all these uh, lovely things and whatever, whatever. We'd go back. He'd always say, go back after two months. His methodology was go back after two months and verify what was said. Because lies are very difficult to keep track of. The truth is very easy to keep track of. And every time we'd go back after two months, the story would change completely. There was actually a woman who bared her breasts in Kashmir, uh, showed us her bra and said that uh, Indian soldiers had killed her son who she had breastfed. Two months later, when we went there and talked to the neighbors, they said this woman never had a son. She's only got two daughters. They're all both married. Okay. I have seen so many instances of that in Gaza where it's competitive victim Olympics because this gets you points. You either become a martyr or if you can't become a martyr, you put out a martyrdom story. It's, uh, you know, it's the same way in our society. Daniel might have a Ferrari and I only have, I don't know, a, 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 a Hyundai. And so in a party at Kushal Mehra's house, I'll say, oh, dude, yours is the last uh, year's Ferrari. I've got the latest Ferrari. And in fact, I don't. You know, it's keeping up with the Joneses. There, the keeping up with the Joneses is martyrdom Joneses. Right. So it's, it, it, it's such a bizarre, West Bank is a lot less fucked up mentally than Gaza is. They can't talk. Have you ever seen a society that can't open its mouth, that 
has been under a state of siege for 17 years, but are so happy with their government that they will not criticize any aspect of their government. How is that even humanly possible? It's, it's, it's an impossibility, right? So you, you realize you're never going to have, I've had more honest conversations with peasants in North Korea than I've had in Gaza. Because in North Korea, being an Indian dressing in a kurta pajama, I was allowed to walk into slums without a chaperone. In Gaza, because of the language problem, it never happened. And everybody was always, oh, look at the Israelis, martyrdom, this, that. I, I knew I was being handled. And it was 10 days of my life I'm never going to get back. And I should say ta-ta to all of you. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Abhijit, you go. And Daniel and I will now take over. Uh, Daniel, let's get into the questions. Abhijit, I'll talk to you later. Um, bye. All right, Dan. Okay, so somebody asked, does Daniel believe that Palestinians are uh, descendants and the original biblical Hebrews? PLO also claims that European Jews or Eastern European converts are not real Jews. How do Israelis respond to that? I mean, you have to look and say Mahmoud Abbas has claimed a lot of things over the years. Um, he does have a PhD in Holocaust denial from the Soviet Union. So mm -hmm. take what he says with a grain of salt. Uh, Abbas has claimed that the Palestinians are the real Israelites. He's also claimed that, no, the Palestinians were the real Philistines. No, uh, the Palestinians were actually the Amalekites. No, the Palestinians were the Canaanites do this. So Mahmoud Abbas has claimed that the Palestinians are the descendants of everyone on the planet at different times. And there is this anti-Semitic conspiracy theory where there was like where the car, the Jews aren't real Jews, their cars are blah, 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 blah. I mean, I, I would say, listen, Mahmoud Abbas is, again, has a PhD in Holocaust denial from the Soviet Union. And he's claimed so many different things over the years. He's claimed that Palestinians are de descendants of everyone and everyone and no one and nothing. Uh, that he should just be outright ignored. I, I mean, I, I don't really want to, you know, I mean, I mean, Mahmoud Abbas is the best at debunking Mahmoud Abbas. So if you you want something, if you want someone to, to counter what Mahmoud Abbas has said, then look to Mahmoud Abbas circa 2016 or 2020 or, or 2012. It, it will it, listen to what he says tomorrow. It will debunk something he said three years ago. Yeah. Now, this question, Daniel, is a very important one. I think both uh, both of us can relate to this in a very weird sort of way. The rich Arab students who are protesting for Hamas or Palestine, what are they getting from this? Social credit, money, sympathy, fame? What the hell is happening across the Western world, Daniel, in all these universities? What is happening here? Yeah, I mean, there's... I think the question answers most of it by themselves. I'll, I'll, I'll add to it a little bit. Uh, my friend Lauren Isaacs, who you might recognize in India from India to today, she's she moved to Israel. Uh, she experienced more crazy anti-Semitism at York University than anyone. She was great. She'd stand up to it. But I studied there. I know you studied there too. Um, so Lauren would be, but Lauren went to York University for four years, like a normal person, and then did that. The heads of the Palestinian human rights groups a lot of them had been at York University for about 10 to 15 years. They take about one course and they get in. So there's a lot of international students who are like the leaders. Um, and they have connections to, to the parties back home. And a lot of them are sort of paid to go to university, take two courses a, a year um, in perpetuity, and then they get into these student body groups and do it. Now, if you're talking about like the rich kids who do it, again, if you come from any Muslim majority country, you're brought up in a culture of anti-Semitism. Like, 
it, it's it's just starting to break a little bit with the Abraham Accords, but this is still a generational project, the Abraham Accords. Like we're two years into a hundred year project with, with that. So yeah, there, there's social status, there's fame. Like if, if you are seen as being like anti-Zionist and you can send that footage back home to Lebanon, that looks great for you. If you're caught saying, you know, having a conversation with, you know, Hillel House and going to a Passover thing and then having friends and doing this, like, that's not going to look good back home. And again, a large part of this conflict is the genocidal anti-Semitism or the hardcore anti-Semitism preached and, and propagated by the Arab nations uh, over the last hundred years. And it's turned into a culture of rabid anti-Semites. And you know, a lot of us don't want to talk about it. Uh, some of us don't have the luxury of ignoring it and sticking our heads in the sand. But a lot of, you know, whiteies from wherever do have the luxury to stick their head in the sand and just, you know, say, oh, everyone's an, an immigrant and a minority and I support all minorities head in the sand. Um, that's the thing. But yeah, it's there, there's a certain amount of social status. Like the anti-Israel side is like, there's a lot more girls you can get because like a lot of the Palestinian groups have learned to glom on to wider Western things. So like there's like, you know, the Palestinian groups are in, you know, they'll go to the, you know, the save the trees group and like the, this group and they, they get into this global lefty thing. So it's, it's a much easier place to just pick up a bunch of 20 year old girls to, and it's easier like to, to be on the pro Israel side. Look, we did an hour podcast. We went through things. Abajit had to pull up a map. We had to talk about history. Like I had to talk about the San Remo Accords. You want to be a Palestinian activist, Turn your brain off and start chanting from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. It's just chanting. It's just easy chanting. You're in a group. Everyone's getting hyped up. Woo. There's no. All right. Let me break down the history here from back. Because if you try and break down the history as a Palestinian activist, you go back before 1964 and realize, oh, Palestine doesn't exist. Oops. Yeah. What the hell is this LGBT for Palestine? Like They can't even be LGBT in Palestine. It's it's this psychotic notion we have that we can hug the terrorism away. A terrorism doesn't come from the Islamic terrorism doesn't come from Islamic scriptures, which are uh, it comes from Western imperialism, right? This is this is the root cause of it in their minds. So they think that if they show their support and they hug the terrorists hard enough, they, their heart will break and realize, oh, it, we we were just really mad at, uh, at at Western imperialism so much, but I see these are the good ones, and you saw. You saw what Hamas did to the good ones when they flew into the music festival for peace, the peace festival, all those people dancing. You know, those most of those people were lefties who went to a peace music festival and thought they could, you know, solve the Israeli-Palestine conflict by dancing around like this. Like, okay, it was naive, but it was dangerously naive because, spoiler alert, queers for Palestine, you go to a music festival and, you know, like, you've seen it. at the You think at the Bataclan, the Islamists who came in, if you said if you said no 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 I'm I'm part of queers for Palestine, there's no there's no like you get the bullet too, um, and I think a lot of it's tied to this ideology of social constructivism. So if we can create the perfect society, that would reduce the terrorism, and I'm better than you. Like I, I think it I think it's um, narcissism masquerading as um, let's say virtue. Yeah, I, who was the person on the? Real time with Bill Maher, who said LGBT for Palestine is like the blacks for KKK version. I can't remember. The, the meme is it's like chickens for KFC. Um, I can't remember who said that. Um, 
you know. Yeah, yeah I can't it, it, remember who said that, uh, Bill Maher. But yeah, it's it, the the meme's been done before. Yeah, it's yeah, it's it's insane. Okay, this is an interesting question. How much role did Yasser Arafat play in the Israeli PLO peace process? And why was why Rabin assassinated? What are the parallels, like if you can draw between Kashmir yeah. and Israel PLO? So, I mean, Arafat was sort of like the ambassador for peace, the leader of the Palestinians since, you know, 1964 and the PLO charter. By the way, in the founding charter of the PLO, they explicitly state that Gaza and the West Bank are not part of Palestine. The only part they considered Palestine was then Israel. So it shows you where Arafat's priorities were, right? And the PLO was a terrorist organization, the Munich attacks, bombings, the Antifadas. So with Oslo, which was a bad idea, um, the this was sort of uh, the peace talks. Um, Israel was willing to give up way more than it ever thought it would and way more than the public was willing to give. Um, and Arafat was pretty clear. In English, he talked peace, but during the Oslo Accords, and a lot of Israeli journalists on the right tried to report it, but the Israeli media wanted to ignore it because most of it was left-wing and wanted to believe in peace. But Arafat was pretty clear that he wasn't going to ever abide by the Oslo Accords and he was just going to use them as further leverage to destroy Israel. Very clear in Arabic. He was very clear going around that he had no interest in actual peace. He was saying this in Arabic. Then he would go to the West and say, I'm here for peace. And so Yitzhak Rabin, you know, he was killed by, you know, we'll say, a, you could say a, you know, ultra-nationalist or far-right or Jewish one who, who thought he was giving up too much land. And, and the assassination was basically... All right, if we give up this land and all this stuff to the Palestinians, it's going to be used as a base of terror against us, ergo Gaza. Um, and so he assassinated Yitzhak Rabin, who was, you know, pushing hard for the peace. And, you know, over all this, like, again, like Ahud Barak was willing to give up like over 100% uh, on land swaps uh, for Palestinians. Like, the, the deals that have been offered to the Palestinians to create a Palestinian state have been way over generous, um, way one-sided to the extreme, and all of them have been rejected by the Palestinians. And there was, I think there was one proposal that was almost accepted, and then at the last moment, uh, Arafat said, oh, and the right of return for all Palestinians into the land of Israel. And then that was the non-starter, right? Because then, oh, what, you know, unchecked Arab migration into the land of Israel, like, and a two-state, and a Palestinian state? Like, no. Um, that thankfully broke that deal. But um, Arafat was always a bad actor. Arafat was always a huckster. He died worth, he was like 12 billion, worth $12 billion when he died. What was Arafat Industries? Like there was a career terrorist. How did he make all this money? Right? Because there's sort of a system. And like, this is where I have sympathy for the Palestinians here. Because the way the international system is set up is it monetizes Palestinian leadership failures. The Palestinian leaders are rewarded to the tune of billions of dollars to fail because they make their money off the peace process. Do you know what goes away if you have peace? The peace process. So the mm. Palestinian leaders still to this day are financially incentivized to the tune of billions of dollars to, to keep a perpetual war going and then say, ceasefire, we need peace talks, um, and then have those fall apart and then go back to trying to kill everyone. And then saying ceasefire, we need peace talks, and then get billions of dollars for those, and, and then on and on and on. So when you incentivize the leaders of a community towards the community's failure, you're going to get community failure. Hmm. So why don't any Arab nations take Palestinian refugees then? Well, they don't want, well, like you could, one, they were used as a weapon against Israel, right? So the first start, they were very clear in the 1950s that they were saving up these Palestinians to use in like 
the the war against Israel. Like they kept them mad, and and one day the thought was they keep them mad, and they will just flood these people back into Israel when Israel is destroyed, right? Because the thing was like, yeah, we lost the first round, but we're going to continue the fight, and eventually we're going to destroy Israel, and then you can all go back. Two, they kind of realize what they've done to these people. They've radicalized them. They have these hives of angry, radical, terror-ridden populations where you go in them and the support for suicide bombing is more than 50%. Do you really want these people in your population is what the Arab states have calculated? Because, you know, if you're Lebanon or Jordan and you've already kind of made your peace with Israel, well, Lebanon and Hezbollah, but if you're any country that's sort of found this equilibrium with Israel, do you really want the segment of your population that has been promised a genocide to go free reign like this is what happened in jordan where they had to why they kicked the palestinians out is because the plo turned on them because they weren't fighting the jews as hard as they claimed they were so all these countries that don't really like egypt like one they're also the palace hamas and the palestinians a lot of them are now under the influence of the muslim brotherhood and egypt um jordan especially their main rival to the monarchy is the Muslim Brotherhood. So why do you want these radical Muslim Brotherhood supporters with a propensity to commit terrorist attacks inside your borders if they're the, um, uh, if, sorry, they got a phone call coming in. Yeah, why do you want them inside your borders if if they're the, you know, the most likely to commit terrorist attacks against you? So again, like, listen, no one wants Gaza. Israel doesn't want Gaza. Egypt doesn't want Gaza. Hell, Gaza doesn't even want to run Gaza. Like, it, that's how bad this is. So you know, we're, we're, we're talking about a situation here where for decades um, we've turned a entire population of people into a significant geopolitical danger that no one wants a part of. And you saw how the mentality of Gaza manifested. Like when Hamas broke the, the border fences, one of the defenses a lot of Palestinian supporters are giving to Hamas is, well, it wasn't all Hamas. Look, there were regular Palestinians who weren't part of Hamas who went through. So that makes it so much worse. It makes it so much worse that the people saw an opportunity to commit genocide, didn't need any prodding whatsoever, and decided to run into Israel to rape and murder as many people as they could. And do you think, like, listen, the Egyptians are anti-Semitic and they want to smack Israel because they are, but they're also not stupid. They know what Gaza is about. They know, like, they helped create this. They were part of, they helped create the Fedayim, um, you know, back, back in the early 20th century, which was, you know, the Egyptian military basically gay trained Gazan militants to like sneak into Israel at night and slit the throats of people in kibbutzes and whatever. All of this predates Israel 1948, right? The, the Fedayeen, you know, you have the Farhud in Iraq. Like it's not, it's not a, it's not a new phenomenon. The Egyptians and the Arab countries know the problem they have created and they don't want to deal with it. They kind of just want to unleash it on Israel and then see what happens. Yeah, so maybe this could be the last solution. Looking at the role of the Americans and the Chinese, it's very interesting what the Chinese have done in this current current moment and what the Americans are doing. So Israel and the world is watching what everybody is doing. But then, you know, there is a thought process in India about the two-state solution that even, you know, India is a prime example of a two-state solution that even after the two states, the hatred doesn't go. Pakistan still wants to annex us. Pakistan still hates us. So so what is, maybe this can be the last uh, working uh, question. And then before we wrap it up, like, what do we make of the geopolitical role as of now, what China has done, what America has done, and what is the future of the two-state solution? 
Well, I mean, I think the two-state solution has been dead for a while. I mean, you're not going to combine Gaza into West Bank into one state. So you're talking at least three states, four states if you already include Jordan and all that. But I think the the lesson here is like, and there's the lesson, I guess, from India as well, is you got to kind of ignore the bad actors in the world. Um, Do what you need to do. Um, Don't appease people who hate you and stand up for yourself, and, and that will make things better. Like the big problem Israel had is like they have to wait 24 hours between rocket barrages to build up enough international support to to respond and go back so Jews in the diaspora don't feel attacked. And like this has not worked. And I think it's actually had a, a, a more negative effect than positive effect on, on Israel's public perception. The fact that they take such extreme care to avoid the loss of Palestinian civilian life. They've emboldened them. There's no fear. Like I like it's gonna it's gonna sound very scary, and I'll get this clipped out and used against me as some sort of monster, but the, the best interest of the Palestinian people and the Israeli people is that the Palestinians legitimately fear Israel to death and and are embarrassed and humiliated by what goes down over the next year, because that will finally put them in a position to sort of tamp this down, because this this the, the, the situation Abhijit described, you can't have that in a functioning society. And it sounds bad, but it's the same way I say no, the Germans needed to be severely humiliated and defeated in the 1940s, severely, right? To sort of tamp down this sort of, we're the greatest bloodline in the world and we will dominate and, and Laban sprout and zah, zah, zah. They needed to be taken down a peg. Same thing here with the Islamists. They need to be taken down a peg. And this calling up and asking, please, can you run away? It's not, it's not how that part of the world works, right? Like... Th- Netanyahu should go on and say, listen, the phone calling, the door knocking, the warnings, it's all gone. Your warning that a a missile is incoming is a missile is outgoing. If you hear a missile launch, run because one is coming back in. That has to be the thing. And will this increase civilian casualties in the short term? Yes. But if we don't do this, you're going to create a a situation through the use of half measures and, and all this has created a situation of perpetual war. So long-term, if the war continues forever and ever and ever and ever, you're going to get more casualties cumulatively than you would if you just decisively fight the war like any other country would ever do. You, there's, a, there's a missile being launched off a building, level the building. Like Then the people in Gaza, because the people in Gaza have free reign to run around and say, I'm a martyr, I'm this, I sympathy, look at me. Because when shit goes down, they get a phone call saying run away. And they can go, okay, run away. And there's no threat to them. Yeah, their home gets destroyed. But again, that's social currency for them. And it'll be taken care of and Qatar will fund it and blah, 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 blah. They get social currency for being that. They get to be a minor celebrity for a bit. They get their 15 minutes of fame. Until they hear rockets going out and legitimately fear for their lives because Hamas is firing rockets into Israel, they're not going to do anything to stop it. And there are different power forces in in Gaza, like one thing people will never talk about is like the Palestinians and a lot of Arab cu- cultures in general, like the, the Arab nation state is a bit of a British creation. You go there. A lot of the power is held in tribal militias. So different towns and, and cities and different areas are ruled kind of half, you could say half by Hamas, but also half by these tribal militias. And I'm saying instigate a c- scenario where the people legitimately hate Hamas because it's getting them killed. And there is some infrastructure there uh, where you do have armed militant, um, you know, tribal leaders who can possibly overtake um, um, Hamas. And, and I do think 
tribal leaders are a lot easier to deal with than terrorist organizations. Now, it's hard to deal with a lot of them, but it's it's easier to deal with a tribal leader or 800 different tribal leaders than it is a terrorist organization that wants to genocide. Like, there's no negotiating with Hamas. Their goal is global genocide. Like, you can't you can't do that. Whereas at least tribal leaders can have some local concerns that you can deal with and, and work with in some way. Yeah, I, I honestly feel terrible. I, the last uh, few weeks, I decided not to talk about this issue last week because tempers were flaring. I was like, I'll wait for a week and I talked about it. That's why I had Catherine first and now, you know, you and Abhijit. I, I just want to, again, once again, through the podcast platform, I want to you know, reach out to the entire Jewish community, and I and I and I want to tell them that the Hindu community is with them. We we feel your pain, and and uh, you know, Catherine has not shared the links of uh, helping uh, the communities in Israel. As the moment Catherine shares that with me, I promise all of you, I will post it in all my social media profiles. So I would urge all my listeners and viewers to go and support the communities in Israel and do whatever you can in your own way, even financially. Uh, like I said, Catherine has not shared the links with me. The moment she shares the website link with me, I will share it. And I would urge all my Indian brothers and sisters to go and help. And Dan, I, I'm very sorry about what has happened in Israel. And I um, and I thank you for coming on the podcast. And hopefully we'll meet again, if not next year in Toronto, this uh, next year in India. Uh, Toronto we'll meet for sure. Yeah. Hashanah Habab, India. Uh, the, the Passover Jews say next year in Jerusalem. That's the thing. But uh, next year in India. All right, guys. So we'll wrap things up once again. Go follow Daniel on social media. Uh, support the National Telegraph too. Uh, uh, that is the news portal that uh, Daniel is, uh, you know, uh, a part of. Uh, you can uh, support the National Telegraph also. And uh, you know, Abhijit, you don't need to go and uh, abuse Abhijit. That's that's what he deserves. He he deserves swear words. That's all he deserves. And uh, as you guys know, this podcast does not do ad reads. So if you can support this podcast, please become a member. It doesn't matter, YouTube, Patreon, Fanmo, wherever you are. Buy the merchandise on kushalmehra.com. Send your donations to UPI. If you can't do any of this, just subscribe to the Charvak Podcast YouTube channel. Like this video. Comment in the comment section. If you're an audio-only listener, leave a rating on iTunes, Spotify. I'll keep trying my best to you know, have uh, to have discussions in the most sane way possible. I, I, I'm not here for bigotry i genuinely want to understand subjects i hope you have and if you have any questions reach out to me i'll maybe pass them on to abhijit and daniel even after the podcast is done and maybe you know we can do a follow-up or something in the future i'll see you guys next time take care bye